Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we are rolling with the times. It's the slam from our 10th anniversary flagship season, The Decades, held on April 28th, 2020, on our online webinite format. During the slam, audience members raised their virtual hands, and the select few shared their story inspired by the theme 20s. But first, we begin with a special guest who has attended every birthday show Story Story has had, co-founder and longtime host, Jessica Holmes. It's story time. Well, hello. So I'm going to take you back to another world. It was two months ago, early March of 2020. Um, I was hiking through this forest on the edge of Nairobi, Kenya called Karuru, and um, I see a group of teenagers coming down the trail. And the guy at the end starts, he looks at me and smiles wide and starts singing, Banish the ghost of Corona. And I was like, touche, um, because A, I was the palest person I had seen in that country, and be definitely a specter of doom and death at that point. When I left on this ill-fated vacation, the coronavirus was sort of like this faraway flu thing. And um, there, was, there was none in Idaho, there was none in the entire continent of Africa until that is the day after I landed. So fast forward two weeks, um, it's the night before the 20th, I'm packing up to go on this two-week vacation into the Moscow Marts, this wilderness area. It's the eighth wonder of the world. It's a three-day trip, and um, my flight was leaving on the fourth day. So I felt okay about it, except that I was, had a 20-hour layover in Paris, which is really the whole reason why I bought this ticket, because it was like this free vacation I just inserted in there, a 20-hour layover to like wander Paris. But by that time, the entire world was falling apart every single minute, and um, even Parisians couldn't wander through Paris. So um, right then, the U.S. declared a level four travel advisory, which meant that all Americans overseas must return immediately or be prepared to shelter in place indefinitely. So that was when I realized I was on this razor's edge between coming home in a few days or living in Kenya in a room by myself for months during the end of the world as we know it. So I have never wanted to see my cat more in all of my life. Um, uh, and that was the moment when my dad called. So he calls on FaceTime from Boise, like he was kind of like Q and James Bond. Um, and he is already on the phone with Delta. And I think you can see when somebody really loves you, when they call Delta customer service during the middle of a global pandemic, that was love. But Delta had no flights. They couldn't change anything. So my dad taps away on his little board, and he finds um, this Emirates flight. It was flying out through Dubai. It was just like the night before my other flight was going to leave. And I just so it was like, okay, dad, here's my credit card info. He pressed enter, and then he has to go to the bathroom. So I stare at his lazy boy recliner just in suspense. And he comes back, and he was like, sorry, it didn't go through. So I was like, okay, okay. But then... Like 10 minutes later, the Orbitz Ferry comes to my inbox and magically I have a confirmation on this flight. 
So Emirates is like the Porsche of airlines. I'm pretty excited. I have two tickets. I have four days. So I go on safari, as you do. And there's something about existential terror paired with the unknown living through that, that sort of like crystallizes everything in amber. You know, every time just slows down and every moment seems stuck in relief and you're just... And the Masai Mara was out of this world. I have no words, but even the drive into the Masai Mara was beautiful. There were um, giraffes and zebra and these Maasai herders who were wearing this beautiful, brilliant pink wraps and the night sky in Africa, two times brighter than Stanley, Idaho, just amazing um and it the, with the cicadas all around it felt like the stars were singing to you it was just so when i was on safari my delta flight through paris was canceled um the night that i returned the prime minister of kenya announced that they were closing the borders about 20 hours after my flight was supposed to leave and then Emirates, the entire airlines was like, yeah, we're going to do the same. We're going to drop Mike on the entire world. See ya. Um, so I had one ticket. I had one day. When I arrived to the Nairobi airport, it was like a refugee situation, but sort of like a Karen refugee situation. Like the lady in front of me, they made a small minor mistake on her son's check-in. So they kept asking her to step aside. And she was like, I will not step aside. I need to make it on that plane. It was like people were terrified. So I look back and tear at the guy behind me and he ends up giving me his spare mask, which who does that? And when I tell social media this, thousands of strangers thank him. So it's like a stranger loving stranger thing. Uh, when I make it into Dubai, I look on the board and I see that my Seattle flight is canceled, but my dad's already there. He figured out flight tracker and he's like, no, that's the next flight. Here's your date. You're gonna make it, you can do this. And though in reality, I was like flying across the North Pole on this first class experience, I felt in my head like I was that one scene with Indiana Jones where the walls are closing in and the boulder comes out and he just barely makes it through. So, um, so when I land in the US, I cry. And I'm not the only one who cried on that plane. And I cried again when I saw my dad, I was wearing my face mask. Um, but he drove, he was driving me back to my Art Deco dream pad and, uh, I hate to get all Dorothy of Oz, but there really is no place like home with cat or Toto or whatever you have to hold on to. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Hopefully I'll have Patty up on the screen. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> this is a surprise to me too. I didn't know I was going to be doing this tonight, but how exciting. So I was 25 years old, and I had just come over from a semester abroad, and my parents announced, I don't think I had even gotten home from the airport more than 20 minutes, actually didn't announce, but they said, so how would you like to go to Washington, D.C.? And I said, well, all right, I, can I unpack? Well, you uh, have an opportunity to go work in the Capitol. Um, but you need to go now. And uh, my parents are, 
they were ones to live vicariously. So the answer was yes, of course I would, because I knew they would enjoy that I would go to DC and work. So um, yes, absolutely. I think we took my suitcase and just put it in the back seat of the car. And we took off for Washington, D.C. from Wisconsin, a little trek. It was a, uh, it was a patronage position for a senator in Wisconsin. I don't think I'll name him because uh, part of this describes him a little bit. But anyway, this was 1975. Uh, Washington, D.C., wow, I was so excited. I uh, went out there. I had nowhere to live. Um, we arrived and thought it would be a good idea for me to find a place to live because I would be starting work the following, I think, in a week. And so we started walking around the hill looking for a place for me to live. I happened to run into a young woman who was with another person looking for a place to live. She had just gotten a job with her senator. And we said, hey, let's find a room together. So we did. We found a flat behind uh, the uh, Library of Congress, right up on the hill, about two blocks from the Capitol, serendipitous. But we couldn't move into our apartment until uh, another week. So she said, well, why don't you stay with me? I'm staying with uh, my senator at his house. Well, great, I said, sure, I will. And uh, so I crashed on Senator Harrison Schmidt, Jack Schmidt, the astronaut's couch, for a few nights until our, our apartment was ready. So Lucy and I uh, started our, our patronage positions, she for New Mexico and me for Wisconsin. Um, and one of the first things you have to do when you start one of these is meet with the senator who's sponsoring you. But before that, I got to work a little bit and get some orientation. I worked in the Senate document room. And at the time, in 1975, the document room was actually right across the hall from the Senate chambers. Uh, so it was this wonderful experience of going into the Capitol, up the elevator, and literally bumping into senators on their way to the, the Senate floor. You weren't supposed to, but you did. Um, it was, it was real exciting. And then to work in that document room right across the hall, there was an old room where Charles Webster would read, they said. There were all kinds of these old rooms. And you could stand above the Capitol Dome and hear the tours being given. And you could make little knocky noises and uh, let tourists think that there were actually ghosts living in the Capitol. So if you heard ghosts when you were in the Capitol, that was probably me knocking. We would uh, pull bills for the Senate floor. They would need something at the last minute or to reference and they come to the document room and we would find those bills for them. Soon into my time there, I had to meet with the Senator and I will never forget, it was, a, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, this Senator was well known for starting something called the Golden Fleece Award. He would find, uh, people or, or funding agencies or government organizations that were abusing funds. That was a good thing. So he really kept his eye on making sure funds were being used well. But uh, we, didn't, we didn't get off to a very good start. I remember meeting with him. First of all, I don't think he wanted to meet with me. I was filling in a position at the last minute. Someone else had dropped out, so I wasn't his first choice. 
I don't know if it was because I was a young woman or what, and was I in school while I was between degrees? So I said, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing some independent studies. So, okay, so check, you're, you're doing independent study. I just remember feeling very intimidated. And this senator had just gotten a hair transplant. So he had these rows of plugs in his head and they were, they were, they were still fresh. So they were, uh, it was, they were little, um, they were little pegs, bloody pegs, rows of pegs. And I was riveted. I couldn't take my eyes off it. Probably a good thing because it wasn't a good time with, I didn't, I don't remember any of the conversation. I was just very intimidated by this, this person. And it also turned out that my uh, graduate advisor was just uh, sent to jail for fraud and abusing federal funds. I didn't have anything to do with it. but So I, I didn't get off to a good start with this senator. But anyway, I, I had a wonderful, wonderful experience in the Senate document room. Fortunately, I didn't have to spend a lot of time in that office. I got to work in the document room. Peanuts all over the place because uh, Jimmy Carter was the president at the time, so we had unlimited peanuts. One of the last things I got to do was meet uh, one night, there was a filibuster, and in through the Senate document room came uh, shuffling this uh, older gentleman from Wisconsin. His name was Senator Gaylord Nelson, and he was the one who started Earth Day. He had started it four years before, and he stopped and greeted us, talked to us, thanked us for being there so late at night during this filibuster, and he shuffled off in his stocking feet to the Senate floor, to whatever the filibuster was at the time. It was a soft one. Democrats had House, Senate, and, and presidents. But um, so ended on a good note. That was one of my final meetings in that experience. So that was my year of being 25. I know my parents enjoyed it as much as I did. Javier, it's you. Oh, hello. <laughs> um, my story is uh, I'd like to chat about the topic of resiliency. Um, I was really inspired by the last couple stories. And um, it seems like the world is in a really strange spot right now. And some days it almost seems like I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do to get through it because it's a, a really weird time, you know. And I'm sure a lot of people in the audience and, and in this session probably feel the same that, you know, the world is in a scary place right now. We're worried about our relatives, we're worried about our family. We might be going through trauma of our own aside from um, this pandemic. So I'd just like to share a quick story about my time in the military. Um, I spent four years in the Marine Corps. Um, as soon as I graduated high school, I actually, first thing I did was I signed the papers and I decided to head out to the military. I have a grandfather who was in the Marine Corps and um, him and a couple other family members who also served in the military kind of kind of encouraged me to join and I was really inspired by them. And so I wanted to, to follow in their footsteps. Um, and I knew that it would be hard. I knew that um, the military is, you know, it's not the easiest job to, to apply for, if you will. But I, I wasn't expecting kind of the mental difficulty that I would have to, to put up with. I was physically as prepared as I could be. I worked out as much as I could to get ready for boot camp. Um, but I hadn't quite, not quite prepared myself for, for the mental challenge of it all. Um, and for my first couple of years in the military, I was, um, you know, honestly very depressed and I was going through a very difficult time. Um, you know, being far away from your family and all that is, is tough enough, but 
there were, you know, definitely some mental health issues that started to present themselves as, as I was a young person and as I entered the military and the, um, the, the mind games that sometimes get played in the military um, really ate at me. And um, I think, you know, kind of deepened my depression. And there were some really toxic um, ideas that I was surrounded by, mainly one of them being that, um, you know, as a Marine, you're supposed to be tough and you're supposed to be able to take everything that's thrown at you. And, you know, I was, I was trained, I had a job to do. Um, I, I worked in helicopters for four years fixing them. And it wasn't an easy job, but um, it was a job and I loved it and I learned a lot of cool things. But even though I could keep up with all the physical challenges, for some reason I couldn't keep up with the challenge in my own head. Um, and it was really difficult. Um, but the, the mindset that I was surrounded by was this mindset that, you know, you, you suck it up and you, you kind of um, embrace the challenge. You embrace the pain and you move on and you deal with it another time. And in a lot of ways, that makes sense in a military environment, you know, because you don't always have the time to deal with um, to deal with the things in your own head at that time. You have to keep moving forward and you have to keep pressing forward, get the job done and worry about everything else later. But I would find myself, you know, in my barracks room late at night, you know, surrounded by these awful thoughts. And I won't go into detail. Anybody who has suffered from depression or, you know, suicidal ideation or things like that knows exactly what that feels like. Um, but I, I still had this mindset that I couldn't seek help. You know, I kind of had to tough it out and figure it out on my own. Um, that was the first two years of my military experience. And then in the latter two was when I finally started discovering that you don't have to do it all on your own. Even if you, you know, are a Marine and you're trained to, to kind of handle the things that are thrown at you, you don't have to go through the mental struggle alone. And at that point, I had started developing some, some sleeping issues. Um, I won't go into detail there. Um, but they became um, really severe to the point that I, I realized I couldn't handle it on my own anymore. Um, and it took a lot of effort to, you know, to, to ask my unit for permission to go to the doctor because I had up until that time been taught that, you know, you keep it to yourself unless, you know, you break a limb or something serious, you don't really need to go to the doctor. Um, but I sought out help. And ever since then, I've been on this journey of, of recovery and understanding that even if the world is falling apart, at least inside your own head, it, you know, it might be falling apart out there as well. But even if the world seems like it's falling apart, you don't have to go through it alone. Even, you know, when you're in isolation, like a lot of us find ourselves right now, I still am on that journey and I still am trying to figure it out. Um, but I would say that when I finally figured out that you don't have to tough it out, even if you're a Marine and there are resources out there that you can make it through it. So I just want to encourage everybody out there who might be feeling um, similar things, might be going through a similar situation or if you just feel like you're at the end of, the, of your rope, realize you don't have to go through it alone and there are resources out there. So um, that's my story and uh, hope it helps somebody out there. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise. And our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Lita Harris Newstetter. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel. 
I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 